Today's episode is brought to you by Benjamin Whitcomb, wonderful cellist, friend of the podcast, and Tamarack Arts faculty. And he's a new album out called 20th Century Music for Cello, featuring the works of Block, Casaro, Hindemith, and Britain. Uh, stick around at the end, and we have an entire movement of a Britain solo suite for you, played by Benjamin. So thank you so much for your support, Ben, and uh, we can't wait to have you on again. Enjoy. Welcome to Lonely Cello. So hello and welcome to the Lonely Cello podcast. My name is Emily Wright and I am here with... Sandra Halloran. Dun, 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 dun. And how do we know each other? Sort of. Well, we're we're more recent friends, I would say. And basically, I learned of you years and years ago from a friend of ours, Nancy Mack, who I met at a score camp, which is a camp for adults here in Rochester, New York, which is where I live. And she had this amazing sticker on her cello case, and it said, no, it's not a guitar. It is not a guitar. And I had been asked for years and years and years, you know, when you go into the grocery store with your cello or the bank, because, you know, you're not supposed to leave your cello in the car. And I'd been asked for years and years and years. What is that? Is that a violin? Is that a guitar? Is that a harp? Do you have a piano in there? Is that a dead body? <gasps> a machine gun? Yeah. Is that a pool cue? What is in there? You know, like so many just odd questions and very consistent and constant. You know, like just always someone asking, what the heck is that thing on your back? And as soon as I got that sticker, it all stopped. <laughs> and suddenly I could go in the grocery store with a little piece. <laughs> um the strange, the strangest thing anybody ever asked me. I remember I, I had to go to the mall. I think I had, um, like maybe like my shoes were not comfortable. Or I just, I remember I had to go in and buy a pair of shoes like pronto and somebody came up to me and reached out and touched it. And he goes, balloon. And I was like, all right, you're a grown up, And you're just like, you're touching my case. You think it's a balloon. And I, so I just went, I just said, yeah. Yeah, balloon. I'm going to go into Nordstrom right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. So anyway, this last Christmas, I was I always give these stickers to my students who in the last year have bought an instrument and finally gotten a hard case, you know, and so I always get these stickers and I could not find them anywhere. And I'm like, well, I know who makes these. So I'm just going to get in touch with Emily, right? And so I Facebook message you. I'm like, hey, do you make these stickers? Where can I get these? And you very kindly sent me the, whatever ones you had, which were only a couple. And then you sent me these other awesome stickers too. And my students were so, so happy at Christmas. And, you know, then we started chatting about Tamarack Arts and, and, you know, so now we're friends and that's, yeah. it, you know, in your, I'm in my forties and I, I think it's true at any age, but it's always nice to have a new friend. It is. It's hard to make a, 
like friends as adults. And also, I don't know about you, but like in LA, like it's easy to have a lot of colleagues, but there's so much competition there that it's just kind of like, I don't know, you can be a little bit bristly, but especially now that I'm in the position in, in Tamarack Arts where I'm actually trying to collect wonderful people, like all of that, at least on my side, it's just like completely dissolved. I see like no competition with anybody. I just want to like hoard awesome people for the organization and me, right? So it's super lucky. Um, so I just want to know, um, a little bit about your journey with the cello. So like, when did you start and like, why did you pick the cello? Um, you know, any like kind of, um, pivotal experiences? Sure. So this is actually a really good story. Um, I started as a violinist in first grade and I didn't know what a violin was. It wasn't my idea, but I really liked it. And my mom our school had a Suzuki program. My mom said, here, you're going to learn violin. I was like, okay, great. I mean, I didn't know really anything about it. And um, I remember going to get my violin at the shop. I remember the lady sizing me and I got to hold the violin in front of her at the shop. And then she told me to take it home and never open it until my first lesson. I was not allowed to touch the violin until my first lesson. And, you know, little six-year-old me was like, oh my God, I gotta touch the violin. You know, like it, it was just like, the fact that she forbade me from touching it just made me want to touch it all the more. But so I was actually really good and I didn't do it. I just would ask my mom, can I open the case and look at my violin? And my mom was like, yes, sure. Just don't touch it. <laughs> like did they make you it's like the, the violin made out of glass was yeah. it a Fabergé egg violin yeah. <laughs> I don't know so for like two weeks we went like a couple weeks before the lesson started and got the violin and uh, so for like two weeks I couldn't touch this thing and it was just so I remember that time you know when you're six you don't remember a lot but I remember that so crystal clear yeah. And then we started violin lessons. And, you know, for the first few years, I really loved it. I can't say I was a very good practicer because I don't think that I was. And my mo mom wasn't a musician. My mom and dad were not really musicians. They didn't really understand the value of practicing. And, you know, so I don't think I was, but I progressed because my teacher was pretty good in school. She was a Suzuki teacher. And but in sixth grade, I got a cassette out of the library that was yo-yo ma in emmanuel axe and i i don't know why i got that cassette out of the library i have no idea i was just always getting things out of the library it was like a weekly thing we just went to the library and got stuff and i must have liked the cover there must have been something about the cover that i liked i don't know and i played this cassette and it was unlike anything i'd ever 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 heard before and I was floored and I called my mom in and at that point I was kind of a disgruntled violinist I kind of didn't really like it I, I was a tween you know I was in sixth grade. I didn't really enjoy playing the violin it was kind of squeaky I wasn't that good at it I mean I was okay at it but I wasn't great and. I heard this yo-yo masidi and I called my mom in and I said mom you gotta hear this listen to this. And she was like, okay, it's classical music. Yeah, okay. And I'm like, no, mom, listen to this. Listen to the sound. Listen to the music. This is cello. And she's like, okay, great. 
And they're like, mom, I have to switch. I have to play cello. This was like the beginning of sixth grade, okay? Like maybe it was like Thanksgiving time. Mom, I have to play the cello. No, you play violin. You're not switching now. You have all these years into the violin. No, you're not switching. So I just became more and more belligerent about this. Mom, I really hate playing the violin. I'm not gonna dress up for solo fest. I don't wanna practice this thing. I would play my violin like it was a cello. You know, I was just like gonna put, say. Put it in my lap. And I almost failed out of orchestra because I refused to play my violin like a violin and I would only play it like a cello. So it was maybe the near the end of the school year when finally my orchestra teacher called my mother and said, you gotta let this kid play cello. She's dying to play cello. I gave her a cello lesson. She gave me a cello lesson. It was like the best thing ever. And that was it. And my mom, my mom finally relented. The teacher at school said, well, I'm not a cellist. I really think you should get her private lessons because she has so much back knowledge with violin that, you know, she's just going to take that all over to the cello and she's going to pick it up really fast. So she recommended me this great teacher at the Eastman School Community Division. And I started there and that was seventh grade. The summer before seventh grade, I started cello. And it's been an upward hill ever since, you know, like went to college, studied with some really great teachers, um, tried several different routes, you know, like I at first my dream, my ultimate dream was to be an orchestral cellist. Mm. I just thought that has to be the ultimate most wonderful job. And then I did it. <laughs> And yeah, the concerts are great. The music making's awesome. The schedule is terrible. It's wild. Like I have so much respect for people who do that because it's like, it's like a monasticism for musicians, right? Like you really have to just like, that's what you do. That's what you do. You practice, you go to rehearsal, you come home, you sleep, you play a concert. Like it's all consuming. And I love the repertoire. I love the experience of performing in orchestra, but I found it honestly super lonely. Even though you're on stage with like 80 people, you basically go to a rehearsal. You maybe have like 10 minutes beforehand if you're gonna chit chat with somebody and then you're warming up and then you play the rehearsal. You have like a 10 minute break in the middle where you can chit chat. And then afterward, everybody goes their separate ways. It's not like you're all like going out to dinner and and like being friends all the time. These are your colleagues and you see them at work and then you go home and you practice four hours a day so that you can learn all the new repertoire. You know, it's, it's I found it to be a little, um, not exactly what I expected. So I took an awful lot of auditions, had some success and then said, I'm really burnt out. I need to make a change. So then I thought, well, I love teaching. I've been teaching since I was 16 years old. I had students while I was in high school. I had students all the way through college, like at least a few, always a few here right. or there, even when I was in school. And I said, well, I really love teaching. Maybe I should get my teaching certification, you know, and become a public school teacher. Why not? You know, the retirement's great. There's lots of benefits. Well, let me just tell you this. <laughs> Most public school teachers are saints. 
what I know, where did these people come from? How do they do this? And I am not, (laughs) I am not, I'm not in their league of sainthood, not even close. They put up with so much bureaucracy. There's so many restrictions. There's, but along with the restrictions, there's so much expectation. And I just knew that I could do it for a little while if I had to, but that a 25 year career or a 30 year career in a public school was not gonna work for me Yep, for the long haul. So I did end up getting my teaching certification, but then I, by then I'd been in Rochester for a few years while I had worked on that. Um, and I had built this huge cello studio of students and I was freelancing a ton and really just making a career, not entirely self-employed. I did work at a couple of community music schools and, you know, I was working for certain people when they had a camp or, you know, right. but, but partially self-employed and partially employed by others. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm making a living doing this. Let's just keep on this track and see where this takes me. So basically since 2006, that's what I've been doing. And um, yeah, so it's been 15 years that I've I've been doing this uh, private teaching freelancing thing. And until the pandemic, it was really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, my teaching still continued during the pandemic, obviously, mostly online for a while. Um, and my students were amazing. They stuck with me. They went with the flow. Even all my adult students managed to get online. And, you know, it, it was, I felt incredibly supported. I only lost one or two students, mostly for mental health reasons, like their bandwidth was just completely consumed and yep. they just couldn't focus. And that was completely understandable. Um, but freelancing just tanked, Oof, yeah. you know, like I remember this first week of it was like March 15th and I probably took 30 or 40 gigs out of my calendar Ooh. in the first week, you know, and it was like the whole. It, and, and it was it was just crazy how much got canceled right away and that was really scary because you know where was there wasn't really support out there for those of us who work the gig economy so yeah no the whole thing the whole thing dried up and i think a lot of us this is a point that i make a lot on this podcast when we talk about the nuts and bolts of being a musician and making a living that it's almost always a patchwork and that many of us who if you look at me, for instance, and you're like, well, how, how does she even afford to do this? Because like, I'm, for instance, not taking new students and I'm writing and I'm running this camp. I do it because my partner largely supports me. So a lot of people are either coasting on savings, um, are changing their expectations of what a life looks like, or they have somebody there to support them. So it's like, it's, None of us, it's none of it is easy. And a lot, nobody likes to talk about like, well, actually <laughs> I made $27,000 last year and that's about it. <laughs> like nobody, nobody talks about that, but that's the reality for a lot of people who, who make a patchwork living, especially right. if, and you're lucky because you, you have students, but a lot of people do the inverse. They teach five or six students and then they gig all the time. And it's like during COVID, 
what do you even do? Right. Right. Exactly. Wild times. Yeah. So thankfully, um, you know, I don't live outside my means and the cost of living here in Rochester is very good, very quite affordable to live here. Generally, the cost of housing, especially, especially before this housing boom, um, was very good. And I've owned my house now for 10 years. Yes. And um, yeah, so, you know, thankfully during the pandemic, I was able to just cut all the extra expenses, no eating out, didn't buy, I didn't buy anything anything that wasn't food for me or something for my animals i didn't buy anything that wasn't a consumable for a year holy smokes and finally after a year i needed a new pot <laughs> like a pot for my kitchen and i was like i need a pot hmm let me go to marshall's and like i went into marshall's and i bought a ten dollar pot and i was like oh my god this is the first thing I have bought in one year. You're an inspiration. So many people did retail therapy instead. Like I didn't have the money. Like I was, I was like really, really, really conserving so that I could still keep putting into my 401k so that I could, or my, you know, my IRA. So I could still keep putting into my savings instead of taking it all out so that I didn't have to dig into my savings. You know, I just, I I live within my means and even less so that when things like this go on, I'm okay. So yeah, I, I mean, I bought a new microphone. I bought what I needed for teaching, but other than that, like I didn't buy anything. So yeah. That's impressive. But, and that I've just kind of kept doing that so that I can still keep, keep financially secure. And, you know, I hope that that's one thing that the pandemic has taught a lot of people. Cause I feel fortunate that I'm a saver and <laughs> I have that I was listening to a podcast this morning. I was reading an article in the New York Times and it was like half the people were living paycheck to paycheck that they were polling and there were like 15 people they were polling. And that's really hard. I'm thankful I don't have to do that. Yeah. Well, so you've inspired me starting today. I'm a saver. Do it. Today. Today. Not yesterday, (laughs) but but today. So I'll have three. get, Get an Acorns account and just have it round up all your purchases. And before you know it, you'll have $100 invested. And there you go. All right. Well, financial advice. That's the podcast. <laughs> See you guys later. Yeah. All right. So, um, so most of our listeners are, you know, like adult cello students or string musicians. And so I'd love to talk just a little bit, kind of get into the nerdy, get into the weeds a little bit. What are some of the pieces that you think are useful and accessible to adults who want to make meaningful music on the instrument? Because like, there are things that you know, you kind of have to truck through learning how to manufacture notes, but um, for students who want something that kind of feeds the art part of them, what are some kind of things that you find are particularly accessible for, let's say, beginners and intermediate and late intermediate? What do you think? Sure, sure. Okay, so first, let me start this out by saying that I firmly believe in teaching adult students as seriously as I teach kids. Mm -hmm. I don't look at an adult student and say, oh, you're old, you can't learn this. You know, I firmly believe that this is something that anybody can learn to do. And yeah, there's, you know, everybody's got to go through the same stages. You got to learn how to pull the bow. You got to learn how to make the notes. You got to learn how to make a sound. You got to learn how to hear. You got to learn muscle memory. There's all these things that you just can't skip just because you're a grown up. You can't just jump to the prelude of the the first cello suite. You know what I mean? Like, 
<laughs> you actually have to learn the nuts and bolts. So, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces that I think are really good. One of them is a set of pieces actually that I like to use with at least my adult students who can play in first position and know how to do slurs and hooks. Mm -mm, I can't hear you. But now I'm getting signal in, right? I can see you. Just, yeah. just making sure Zoom wasn't showing it. Everything is fine. I just wanted to make sure in case we had to do an edit. Sorry to interrupt you, but just pick up or you can you can back up a little bit and I'll edit it out. I'm so sorry. Just wanted to make sure we weren't like recording into the nothing. Okay. So. Mine still says that it's recording. So oh yeah, I can't just hear you. Yeah, no, I just wasn't seeing signal on mine and I was seeing your signal uh -oh. and I'm like, oh no. So, okay, continue, sorry. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so let's see. Well, there's one, one set of pieces that I really think are helpful to adults who can at least play like Suzuki book one and two. Mm -hmm. Okay, they gotta put in their time in the beginning. They got it. There's no, it's hard to make meaningful music when you're just thinking about, is that a second finger or a third finger? Like right. you have to get to a certain level before actually making music becomes part of the history, part of the story. Um, but have you ever taught the 15 easy studies by Popper? Oh, I have baby Popper and the, the duets. Although the at duets. the end, I love how at the end though, they're like, go wild. There's nothing written on the bottom. <laughs> It, there is in in IMSLP. Go in IMSLP. There's a different edition than the international, and it has the duet parts for the last five. Okay, because every now and again, I was just like, I'll do some drones here or playing thirds. I had no idea. Super informative. I will. Do, I'm yes. gonna write that down right now. Actually. Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 So they're there. I found them recently, <laughs> like <laughs> la like last summer. <laughs> Okay, so cool. You aren't that far behind me. All right, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that those they're all the left hand is all in first position. And you know, it's it's a you, and they sound pretty and they're fun to play. Like some of them are slow and lyrical and some of them are fast and rhythmic and there's a variety there. So most of my adult students can manage those and they really get a lot out of them, especially that we can play them as duets once they've mastered kind of or gotten them to a steady tempo we can we can manage to play them as duets. So that's one set of pieces that I really like. Now, I, I'm a Suzuki teacher and I actually do use Suzuki with my adult students. I don't so much do the method like I would with like a four-year-old, okay? It's not the same thing. It's the same music, but it's done in a different way with grown-ups. Um, but I do make them do all of Suzuki book one, two, and three <laughs> because those pieces just, if you can play that stuff, you can play a lot. It's a thoughtful progression. I always say that like the German methods do what makes sense to the brain. And then the Suzuki, especially the first three books, do what makes sense intuitively to the hand. So it's like those two things together, you end up like genuinely as an intermediate cellist at the end of that third book, you're like, I can't do all this. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Sure. So, so I do do most of book four. And then after that, it's like hit or miss what I use in the Suzuki method, because I also do a ton of etudes. Mm -hmm. So like by the time in, in Suzuki book two, they're doing position pieces by Rick Mooney. 
In book three, we add double stops. In book four, we add Scaling the Tenor Clef Dragon by Miriam Wu, which is a wonderful book for learning tenor clef. I'm going to write that down too. <laughs> Scaling the Tenor Clef Dragon by Miriam Wu. It is, you know, like, I don't know how you teach tenor clef, but like, I used to just teach it when it showed up in a piece. <laughs> or like, when we got to position pieces book two, I always felt like the tenor clef was way too hard because you're thinking about all this fancy shifting and you have to know tenor clef also. And so I found this book by Miriam Wu and it's really amazing. It starts in first position and it's kind of a workbook. They have to write in the names of the notes and it's really useful. Um, and it's a great kind of intermediary before you just pop into some etude book that's in tenor clef. I usually, when people get to the swan, I kind of teach that because I teach like that G in fourth position is like the home of tenor clef. It's kind of like the most common place where we're going to switch. Right. And, they, and everybody wants to learn the swan so badly that they will just eat their vegetables and deal with this new clef. Also those scalar passages, you can do the trick where it's like, oh, I'm one string over. Right. Um, I've actually haven't used any specific method for it. So I'm really looking forward to having something to kind of, um, especially when I teach somebody who, for instance, doesn't really relate to the swan. There's like yeah. three people I've taught who are like, oh, I don't get it. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know. I love swan. It's like still top five for me of like all time. It's so rewarding to play, but still yeah. that's really good. And I love that, she, that somebody just took it upon themselves to be like, no, there's nothing in this space. And we need, cause yeah. Cause e even just like I'm trying to think like, even when we get into like some of the easier, like more advanced repertoire, it's just like, it's a shock all of a sudden this new thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a really, really great book. And it's got a really fun cover with a dragon and a cellist, like climbing up the dragon and yeah, it's, old. it's, it's awesome. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, so when they get to book four, they start this tenor clef journey because at the end of book four is chance on trees, which is in tenor clef. Yep. Um, but the beginning of book four is Braval Sonata. And a lot of times my students are like, yes, I've made it to book four. And man, I have my first real cello sonata right off the bat. And that is usually super, and it starts with these amazing chords, right? Right, it's so and, powerful. And they're like, oh my God, I'm playing chords. Oh my God, I'm playing a cello sonata. Oh wow, this now, I'm a real cellist now, you know? And so mm -hmm. I find often that that Braval Sonata, that very beginning of book four is really in encouraging and invigorating for a lot of my adult students. And that piece is actually not that hard to play if you understand rhythm. That's right. It's, it's one of those things though, where I feel like it is a bit of like a high watermark. Like if you're falling over the triplets, if you don't like going from triplets back into those 16ths or into duple eights, it's like, it's also just a little bit remedial because everybody is excited about playing it. And it really does sound like real music. Again, that's another piece where like, I have yet to get sick of it. I am excited every time someone gets to the Braval. Same. Yep. yep, I love that piece. And I even love the second movement, the rondo. I just think it's super fun. And with the little grace notes, yeah. Oh yeah. And that's when my students they just go nuts with tempo and they start saying, Oh my gosh, I'm learning how to play fast. You yeah. know, because there's not that much, except for like Allegro Moderato, there's not that much in Suzuki Book Three that's actually super fast. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, you know, it's all like kind of just 
ho-hum tempos. Yeah, and the trio and the trio is actually purposefully a little bit held back. Like everybody wants to be like, beep, 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 up, up, up. I'm like, hold the, hold the peppers, guys. <laughs> this is actually dainty. Pinkies up, everyone. Um, and then actually remind me, where do the squire pieces come in to the, um, because I feel like you get a little bit of quickness there. Is that book four? So Don's Rustique is in book five. Five. And Tarantella is in book six. Oh, gosh. So I, I usually order those a little bit sooner, but maybe that's also because I kind of like to give them dessert again as a reward for eating all their vegetables. I'm yes. like, you played through these Schroeder etudes. Let's give you something that has a little bit more fire in it. Yes. Well, the next piece I was actually going to bring up is the Tarantella by Squire. And I would say also Dance Rustique is kind of in the same. They're friends. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so, but Tarantella is a great jumping off piece because there's really only four notes that are really hard. <laughs> you know, and that two that, of them are B flats. <laughs> well, that, but it's the big scale going up, right? Like yep. going into jumping up into thumb position. That's really the only thing in that piece that is like kind of outside the rest of the pieces level. And um, so when my students finally are learning like fifth, sixth, and seventh position, and maybe they've started a little bit of thumb position, I give them the Tarantella and that just, they're like, oh, this is how all these different pieces of the cello fit together. Oh, okay. Right. You know? So yeah, my, I kind of feel like, you know, like when you're in Suzuki books one through three, you're kind of like just learning about the first four positions and you're staying like, you know, you're learning how to make proper extensions and your normal handshape and you're learning to play in tune and rhythm and all the basics. And then in the intermediate area, it's like, okay, let's polish up these first four positions. Let's start learning about these neck positions, but let's do it in a way that you know, focuses on them. So yeah. you have like position pieces book two where, okay, you're kind of going to just stay in this area and work on one position at a time. And then thumb position, Rick Mooney's first thumb position book. I use all the Mooney books, by the way. I don't know how you feel about them, but. No, I, I love all of his books. And I was lucky enough to have a couple lessons with him when my teacher went off and gallivanted with Honor Bilmsma at some like oh, nice. Dutch Baroque nerdery thing back in the, the eighties. And, um, also legit his thumb position, his thumb callus look like a cabbage. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he has next level thumb position technique. So Absolutely. it's like, it's, of course he's the guy who wrote those books. Right. And yes. all of his students were brilliant. Yeah. Well, my students play all five of those books. And, you know, by the time you get to the end of Thumb Position Book Two, you can play pretty much anything. If you can play that book, you can figure out how to play almost anything. So yep. I feel like those books really set you up for, for success. So um, where was I? Yeah, so, you know, Tarantella, you're learning these different parts of the cello, but then you kind of start putting it all together. And that's when you become, you know, a Sassau cello concerto player is when you're finally able to, you know, all these different pieces of the cello and now let's put them, put them together, moving up and down the cello. That, so that was the first concerto I learned. Um, I know a lot of people get the, do the JC Bach, but is, um, was, was, is Sasson one of the first ones you teach? Yeah. Sansan's usually the first one. And most recently, have you ever seen Kasia Harvey's study book? Yes. I reviewed it for strings. She's just fabulous. That Sassaw study book, it, I use that with all of my students when they learn the Sassaw. And at the very least, if they're paying attention, they learn how to practice. Right. 
at the very least, you know, because there's so much repetition and that book is just brilliant. And so my students are working on the study book and they're learning the first movement of the concerto at the same time. And yeah, so I feel like that's a really good, like it breaks it down into the tiniest common denominator, you know, like it's so clear. And I just love that book. And yeah, they even learn how to practice by then. They they know it from her book. Right. And I feel like the sense is so good for people who are ready to do a concerto because it also though it does give you kind of the archetype like you need to be able to make big musical statements there are some really like noodly passages there's that one double stop passage where there's nothing else that really prepares you for it you just learn how to do that by doing it mm -hmm. right second movement has to be lyrical and delicate and then the third movement is like probably the first time they've seen something that the first time you practice it you think there's no way I'm ever going to get this fast because that's an important journey also just to see something where you're like no 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 way I'm like no no it it's, it's six weeks you'll get it at the end of the six weeks. <laughs> like, right, exactly. And it's it's such an, like, I feel like people are transformed by the time they finish playing that. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. the third movement, I do think the third movement's pretty hard. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> I haven't taught that actually to too many students. We mostly focus on the first and sometimes the second, but, you know, I also feel like then they're ready, by the time they've learned the first movement of the Sasa, they're kind of ready for something new, like a different style. So I often like go to the Haydn, or even sometimes the Baccarini, if the Haydn doesn't resonate with someone, I'm like, okay, well, the Baccarini is harder, but if you like it better, you know, let's do that. And, um, but I also feel like anyone who can play pretty much any of the stuff we just talked about, like the Braval or the Tarantella or the Sassa, can maybe feel even more connected to the first box suite. For sure. With the you bow know, control and moving up and down the neck without any like hesitation. Well, and the the first box suite, there's not anything really above fourth position, and and it's true of the first three or even four suites that there's not a lot of like high playing, you mm -hmm. know. So if you're really comfortable in those first four positions, and you're comfortable going between not just first and fourth, but also like second and third, and you're comfortable in that whole realm, then learning a box suite is is I think, especially for adults, can be very emotionally satisfying. And, and the box suites are at least what, for my adult students, it's one of the things that they name, like, this is, I heard this and I was moved by it and I want to play this. Um, and just like a moment of solidarity, like if you're an adult cello player and you can manufacture all the notes of the suite, but it's not coming out the way you want, it's totally fine. I've been learning the sweets since I was probably nine or 10 mm -hmm. and I am nowhere close to making a recording of any of them. And I'm just going to keep improving on them. And so it's one of those pieces where, um, maybe like as an undergrad, I would get like a sonata up for performance in my first time learning it. That just usually doesn't happen with a suite. You normally learn it and then you have to like let it gestate for a while and then come back for like a second really concentrated go of it. So just a little bit of solidarity, like they are, um, there's no room for mess in a box suite. Whereas like the Saint-Saëns, you can have a little bit of mess and schmaltz and they're like, yeah, romantic. The box does not offer any of that cover. Agree. And I, I think that Bach is a lifelong pursuit. Yeah. You know, you're never done with it. I find that every time I go back to a, a movement that I've 
studied since I was 12 or 13, you know, mm -hmm. every time I go back, I'm like, oh, why did I choose this bowing? Oh, why did I choose this fingering? Maybe I want to completely rehab all the dynamics in this entire section. You know, like you're a different person every time you come to those. So even if all you can manage is to play the notes the first time you go through and you're like, why can't I make this sound like Bach? Well, you haven't been playing it for 50 years. Yeah. And also, um, Stephen Easterlis is such a wonderful person and he's so cool on Twitter, which is where I, I interact with him. Um, and he is constantly trying to disabuse people of the notion of Bach being these like ivory tower pieces. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you're, you can be a completely legitimate cellist and never have like gotten all the way through the sixth suite. It's like, I've been dodging that Alamond for my whole life. I'm learning it now, but there are reasons. <laughs> it's just, it, <laughs> yep. is, it is, I mean, it's hard. It's really, really hard, but also it is for us. He wrote it for us and you should mess with them and try them and skip the hard measures and play the measures that you like and do whatever you can. Just, they are for you. If you are hearing this and you love them, they are for you. They're not just for Zwill Bailey, who is perfection. And also his hair is incredible. Just now yeah. we're a Zwill Bailey fan podcast. I really like him. I met him. He was here at Eastman a few years ago and I got to meet him after a concert that he did. And he's a really nice guy. He like, he, he like took my phone. He's like, let's take a selfie. But, <laughs> yeah. but Sandra, truly, if you had hair that looks like that, would you not just do selfies all the time? Like, yeah. Come on, man. You're good at the cello and you have the hair. It's like yeah. Josh Bell. He and Josh Bell should have like a hair fight. I wonder who would win. <laughs> my money's well, on Will. And Steven Etherlands. He's got great hair too. Oh my God. That's right. Let's put him in the octagon and see who comes out alive. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so these are some of the, the pieces that I just hope that like, if you're an adult and you're listening to this, like if you haven't explored these pieces or go back and like kind of explore them with a fresh mindset. Um, and I'm just going back actually to your own time as a student, like when I'm practicing, I still hear the voice of my instructors, um, or of people who, like even actually at the last Tamarack camp, I learned so much by watching the other teachers, like talk about shifts and vibrato things that I'm constantly working on. I'm just wondering what are some things from your time as a student that you think our listeners would, um, benefit from knowing? Sure. So that's a really good question because I had a lot of great teachers who I really respect and learned a ton from. You know, um, I studied with someone named Ingrid Bach. She's a cellist in the Rochester Philharmonic as a kid from seventh grade to 12th. And then I studied with Paul Katz, the um, Cleveland Quartet cellist, when I uh, did my undergrad. And then I studied with Steve Doan and his wife, Rosemary Elliott. Uh, for my master's degree. And then, you know, in between there were, I studied with Richard Weiss from the Cleveland Cor Cleveland Orchestra for a while and um, just a bunch of different cellists for master classes and summer camps and, you know, whatever. But I had a lot of musical input as a kid. Um, and my teacher, when I was a kid, seventh grade through 12th, she inspired me musically like nothing else. And she let me play i was i mean i was a pretty good student i practiced you know like an hour a day i really did it and i learned fast because i had all that violin knowledge 
and I got what string instruments were about and I could read music and so I I like advanced pretty quickly and she just kind of let me play which was good <laughs> in terms of making me love music like yeah. there's like I just it was my thing from that day on from pretty much the day I met her I was like I want to do this this is what I want to do and however she was not a very thorough pedagogue and by the time I was you know getting into Eastman I could play the cello but I had no idea what I was doing physically mm. None. like my bull hold was a total disaster there were so many things that Paul Katz just took me back to the very beginning. My first lesson was, this is how you sit. Mm. You know, like, it wasn't like I got into Eastman and I was just on a roll. It was like, okay, we got to rehab a lot of this stuff. And, and that's actually something I really want people to hear because you think about somebody going to Eastman or somebody going to CIM or NEC or any of these other acronym schools that are so imposing. And what's cool though, is that Sure, they tend to mint people who are fabulous instrumentalists, but it is a place where people who love music and have been serious about it go to be taught. So you don't just show up there and then you're praised the entire time. I think most of the people I know um, were exactly like that. So we were on fire for our instruments and we got all the way through high school and then somebody, then they're like, oh, you want to do this professionally? let's break it down. So, let's break it down. Yeah. Let's get serious so that you can have a lifelong career. And Paul Katz was all about injury-free. Like everything we did was about releasing tension. Everything we did was about safe playing. Everything we did was about how to do this for 70 years and not hurt yourself. Awesome. You know what I mean? And so I'm, I'm really particular about that with my students. And I tell them, if you don't stop squeezing with your thumb, you're going to get carpal tunnel. <laughs> yep. You know, and then two years later, I'm still telling them stop squeezing with your thumb and then they get carpal tunnel and they're like, you were right now I have to fix this. Yep. You know, like, so it's really true. You need to work on the technique. You need to work on releasing tension. It is a daily battle. It isn't something you learn to do once and then you have it forever. It is a, every time you sit at the cello, you have to inspect your body and pay attention to everything that you're doing with your body to avoid these injuries. And I know you've struggled with injuries through your career. And, mm -hmm. you know, that is, there's nothing more demoralizing than hurting while you have to do what you have to do. Or doing like associating pain with the thing that you love doing more than anything else. Yeah. Um, but um, there is a way in which always being on the the knife edge of like, right, because when when I'm playing really well, it also means that I'm playing right up to the limit of, re you know, re-injuring myself. Yeah. Um, it has made me so intensely grateful for being able to continue to play. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that my teaching would be as exuberant um, had I not nearly had the whole thing taken away from me. Um, that's like it, you don't need to have that experience to like be a joyful teacher, but like there's kind of an, I feel like I have a second chance and some people don't get that. Some people don't come back from yeah. it. 
That's well, that's awesome that you can, you know, have these previous injuries, which once you get an injury, it's kind of always lurking, it's lingering, right? You have to be really careful, especially like shoulder shoulders, you know, you injure, you get an impingement in your shoulder and you're always like, you feel that little tiny burn and you're like, oh, put my shoulder where it belongs, release, you know, and like, so it's always a reminder. You yep. never want it to come back again. Yep. Um, but yeah, so I think one thing from my younger years was this lack of attention to pedagogical detail. <laughs> You know, and so now I think that makes me super conscious of that. And I feel like over the years, my teaching has really become really organized. I know the range of right. You know what I mean? Like there's a range of right when you're playing Twinkle. When you're first beginning, the range of right is pretty big. You know, is your bowl hold close? Are your fingers close? Like how close? Right. You know, like, is your posture close? Within the realm of maybe from far, I always liken this process to, um, like, camera resolution. So, like, yes. am I, from across the street, do you look kind of like you're doing it? And then as you get better and better, yes. you can get closer and closer and inspect the pixels, right? Exactly. Yeah. So this range of right when you're first starting is pretty big. Yeah. And then slowly, 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 we whittle it down until right. we're really trying to hit the target. And we're trying to hit that target every time. And not just sometimes, but we have this consistency in this firm foundation of understanding be beneath us that supports everything else that we want to do. That's right. So I have this idea in my head all the time, whether I'm teaching a four-year-old or a 17-year-old or an 80-year-old, that my job is to work myself out of a job and send these people out into the world to do their cello thing with and however they want to do it. And I've had, you know, most of my students who have graduated in the last probably 10 years have all gone on to play in school. They're not musicians. That's not their full-time gig. They're like lawyers or doctors or, you know, politicians or whatever they decide they want to do. But they all played in their college orchestras. They all play in community orchestras. They play in string quartets, you know, and they're comfortable. Sometimes they come back to me with a specific thing and we have a few lessons and- of course. Yeah, okay, you need help with the Chike 5. Okay, that's a really big piece. Let's yeah, me it. too. <laughs> yeah, let's learn Chike 5. Yeah. You know, but um, I'm thankful I have, you know, kind of a big repertoire. So when someone comes at me with something, either I can learn it pretty quickly or, or it's something I've played before. But yeah, I like to send them out with that solid foundation so that they can just do whatever they want with cello, wherever they want to do it. Absolutely. Um, so actually, let's think about some of these students who kind of are going out and they're functioning really well and art is a meaningful part of their life. And again, this is something we've talked about um, the past two episodes where I, I have not encouraged anybody to be a music major in a long time, um, just because it's, it's a hard slog. And it doesn't mean that you can't do music even at some kind of professional level, but there does have to be some sort of parallel or you have to, you know, you're not going to get there just by performing, performing and teaching maybe, but even that, like it's, it's dicey. Um, but that doesn't mean that music can't be at the absolute heart of absolutely everything you do. Um, so I'm just trying to think about, you know, these people who are successful players and successful students. And what are some of the, the traits that you see in people who go on uh, and are successful? Okay. Well, I think 
so I'm mostly, I guess we're talking about adults then, like my yeah. students who have become adults, whether they're my students who took lessons from a very young age and became adults, or I also think I'm just talking about students who started as adults. You know, my retired students who, who said in my retirement, I wanna learn how to play cello. You know what I mean? So success by successful adult, those are all the people that I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And it's the same, I think I have the same traits that make all of them successful. Number one, they practice. They're still practicing like we are. We yeah. both practice, if not every day, it's when we can. And especially we practice when we need to practice. That's right. Um, you know, but um, I feel like the successful adult student still sits down in the cello chair, they play some scales, they work on whatever music they're meant to play that day, and they still have a love of getting at the cello regularly. You don't just go and play an orchestra once a week and expect that you're just going to play that music. I mean, that's just, we don't do that either. No, you know, you, I, I would fall down on the job. <laughs> exactly. You prepare for those things, and that means yeah. that you need to still practice. Yep. So, and that's the same for any... Even a kid who's going to be successful, they have to practice consistently. You know, that's a thing. That's something that professionals do. That's something that students need to do. Right. Pablo Casal said, um, right, like, wh why after all these years do you still practice? And he said, I think I'm finally getting somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I think, I think, I think maybe, maybe there's some progress being made here. <laughs> right. So if it's good enough for Pablo, then probably I can still hit the woodshed a little bit and, that's and right. keep my Galamian scales on point. <laughs> That's right. Another thing that I think makes adult students really successful is that they're willing to put themselves outside their comfort zone. It is not comfortable to take an audition for your community orchestra. Absolutely vulnerable. <laughs> it's like the, the most uncomfortable 15 minutes of your life. You will never spend more time preparing for the shortest presentation you've ever given. And you won't remember any of it, by the way, you'll just, it's like you black out. <laughs> exactly. it's so, it is such a wild experience, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so they're willing to put themselves out there. They're willing to also like reach out to someone and say, Hey, do you want to come play chamber music with me? You know, maybe you don't even really know their playing level, but you just want to get together with people. So you kind of have to reach out. You have to get outside your comfort zone. You have to say, okay, yeah, this is going to be really hard, but let me try. They have to be at least willing to try. Yeah. Um, and with the try, they also have to be, it, this is more for like adult beginners. Mm. They have to be willing to be bad. Because <laughs> when you pick up a cello, you're not going to be Yo-Yo Ma in a month. You're not ever going to be Yo-Yo Ma, neither am I. Yep. <laughs> you know, none of us are going to be Yo-Yo Ma. And, you know, so I think you just have to be willing to really sound pretty bad for a while. Yeah. And that is one of the things when, when we talk about learning differences between kids and adults, uh, and there are some learning differences, but like, this is my whole wheelhouse. It is everything that I studied in postgraduate, that the main thing that makes kids such good learners is not that they have some genius level computer brain. It's that they're so much better with adversity because they're bad at everything because they're kids, right? So like learning to walk wasn't that long ago. <laughs> then they have the insult of like, congratulations. Now we learn long division. You thought you knew how numbers work, right? So like everything is adverse and they just, for 12 years, you just suck 
at everything. And so they're just not adverse to it. And they don't think it's something about them personally. Right. So that, and it's the true with the cello, but the problem is that makes it so hard is that when you suck at math, it's quiet. If you're terrible at pottery, <laughs> you can just like, you can just like meld that thing down, but the cello and violin, I think is almost worse because the squeaky factor is just so, I mean, really props to adult violin students, right? Yes. It's really, you know, you know, and also the worst, even worse than that, when you do it right, sometimes it still doesn't sound good because it's just like, you have to get comfortable doing that. So right. that's my spiel neuroscience yep. person weighing in here. Yes. It's, it's, you, you do have to be okay being bad and sounding yep. bad. And it's, and there's nothing that you could do that Sandra and I would be like, Oh, that's terrible. We've done it ourselves. We hear it for a living. It is like, no, you're fine. It's fine. Totally true. <laughs> yep. Yep. And along with that being bad is they have to accept that, but then they have to be willing to work through the process. That's right. You know, like it can't, like it, we talked about before, you don't just jump into the box suites. Like you have to go through the process of learning. I always tell my adult students that they need to give the cello 10 years, 10 years of consistent effort. Consistent means nearly daily effort for 10 years. Yep. And if you don't like the way you play after 10 years, then you can quit. You say you've given it your a go. Yeah. 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 Or, you know, and most of my students within two or three years, we have a really awesome program here in Rochester called New Horizons. And mm. I know they have them around the country, but it's specifically for adults through the mm. Eastman Community Division. And um, it, it, they have varying levels of orchestra. They have like a green strings, which is, you know, you're green, <laughs> you're beginners. You know, you've been playing a year, you know how to hold your instrument, you know how to make a sound, you know how to hold your bow and you can read music and you can go there and play with others. Mm -hmm. And then they have a string orchestra and then they have a full orchestra and they have a plethora of choirs and bands and other groups. Um, but most of my adult students play in those groups. So they're out playing with others, which I think is for most adult students is a goal that they often have. I'd like to play music with others. I'd like to play in a band. Right. Okay, let's learn, bring whatever music you need to play in the band. Let's learn the skills that we need to do whatever your goal is. Um, so, you know, after a couple years of being a beginner, they, they join these groups and they move up through the ranks and it really gives them meaning to all their practice because they have some place to perform you know, there and play with other adults. And it's not just them sitting in a practice room and coming and playing for me, but it has bigger meaning to them to go out and play with others. And they, they get this whole new friend group as a retired person that they never would have had before. There's not just that, but also when you, especially import, important is in like your first experience when you are in the lower group. And it's so important that there is a lower group. It's really hard when you've got like, just one group in your locality and the, the levels are so varied. But what I learned in orchestra is that you can make a mistake and the world doesn't stop. And that also you see other people make mistakes and you see that you're not judging them, that you're like, oh yeah, that's a hard shift. I would absolutely miss that note if I were playing the violin or the trumpet or whatever. And so what you start learning is 
damage control and management and counting and staying part of the group and understanding that your contribution is valuable and valid. Um, because I think a lot of people who play just by themselves, you get this really weird myopic vision of like, well, that wasn't perfect. And and I have to start again and playing in an orchestra. It's like, you know, you have to surf, you have to ride the tide and you just finish when everybody finishes and thank God. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it, it just gives you though, like, like you, you can go through an actual performance and there's a bunch of mistakes and it just kind of all comes out in the wash and people are like, yeah, man, I like Mozart. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think they, it, it gives them this, they, they have this passion about it from playing with others that they wouldn't just have if they just took lessons. So I think playing with others is a really big deal for yep. my adult students for sure. Um, how, so what about the flip side? Like, um, are there sometimes when, when you see a student who's like failing to thrive, are there some things that like, we don't know what happens at home. Right. And people are rarely accurate in describing how their practice actually goes. It's hard. It's hard to be objective. I don't know if I'm actually accurate in how I describe my practice. So that's fine. But um, what you, when you see things in a lesson and you're like, oh, this, this is not going to go well. So I am a very demanding teacher. I think most of my students would say that, you know, I expect my students to practice, I expect them to respect me enough to show up to their lesson prepared to play. Mm -hmm. You know, I just feel like that's a respect thing. If you're gonna make an appointment with me to come together with me and you're asking me to teach you something, then you're gonna do your part by preparing. And um, so that's one thing, like if they don't practice, that's the biggest thing I think, if you don't, just get in the chair every day regardless of even in the beginning how you go about doing it yes are there better ways to practice than others of course but as a beginner if you sit in that chair 15 minutes a day 20 30 40 it's different for every person but if you sit in that chair for a small time every day you're gonna get better yeah the brute force method like you, you still end up getting there <laughs> yeah you yeah. get there eventually i mean i'm pretty specific and i say this is what i want you to do when you're practicing this is you know i want you to do this many repetitions i want you to right. practice this shift 15 times you know like i try to be specific until they figure out oh this is what i should do with every piece right this is, this is how we learn this this is these are learning strategies and so I think a lack of consistent practicing is, is set up for failure, period. Mm -hmm. No matter how you practice, if you don't practice, it's going to be bad. Second, I feel like you were saying, well, you don't know what goes on at home. That's one thing that I feel like if there isn't the proper support, especially for kids, but also for adults, if there isn't the proper support and environment, both going together, environment and support, then it's really hard. Like for instance, um, so by environment and support, I kind of mean like family and home life and where you live and how you live. Mm -hmm. So do you listen to music in your house? When, my, when I say to a student, go home and listen to this piece, 
before you practice it, I want you to look it up on YouTube and practice it and, you know, listen to it first. Do you actually do the listening? Do you do as a parent, are you saying to your kid, have you practiced your cello today? Are you bringing it up as something that you want them to do? Kind of like, have you brushed your teeth today? Yeah. Have you taken a shower today? Did you take a bath? Have you had an apple today? Like, what did you eat? Did you eat breakfast? It's just another one of those things you ask, did you do your homework? Did you practice your cello? So I don't think it's outside the scope of expectation to ask a parent to check in with their kid if they've done what right. I expect them to do. Um, and then things like, do you go to concerts? There are lots of free concerts around. It doesn't, I'm not asking you to spend $700 on Met opera tickets, you know, like go to a free concert, go to a concert at your local high school, go to a concert um, at, at your local college. You know, there's lots of free concerts. And also like there are a million of them on YouTube and it's, it's not exactly the same, but you can watch somebody making live music and you can see kind of the level of, and there's, there's a variety of them, right? But it's like, right. it's just useful. I always like to send my students to watch um, college senior recitals. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because then they see, yeah, that amazing level. Um, when you attend your child's lesson, if you attend your child's lesson, are you sitting in the corner playing on your phone? Are you playing Candy Crush? Or are you taking notes in a notebook? Are you paying attention to what the teacher is saying and actually writing something down so that you can have a conversation with your student afterward and say, hey, you know, remember Miss Sandra said to practice this and this and this, and you don't hear them doing any of that, then you can, you know, just, even if you're not a musician, if you sit in the lesson, you hear what we do and you can rec help recreate that at home. Um, for adults, do you, do you have them, um, do you have your adults take their own notes or do you write notes for them? I don't write notes for anybody. I write in their book, like the date on the thing. And sometimes we'll write in a couple of things to think about or we'll circle a couple of things mm -hmm. what they need to practice. But some of my adult students record their lessons so they can look back at them later. Um, I don't really write notes for anyone. Mm -hmm. I, I, they can, they can sit out in my kitchen, you know, afterward and write all the notes they want. I don't mind if they hang around to write things down before they mm -hmm. leave, but I don't like to take less in time to write notes. Yeah. And, and, and I used to do that and it didn't make a difference. So I just stopped. Using I'm actually, I'm considering doing that as well, because sometimes I write out like extensive notes. And then like, if you're not practicing with that really in mind, it's like, I just, I just scrolled all of that and tired out my hand for like not a whole lot of result. But yeah. I think I'm recording a lesson. I, I wish that I had ha had the technology back then to record my lessons because I know I know so much of it sailed over me. Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Katz used to record us on VHS tape. <laughs> he had he had a camcorder and he would turn that thing on and we he had us like going through a TV into a VCR so we could watch ourselves play on the TV. It was it was it was very smart. I would go home and take my lesson again the same night so that I was getting the same everything he said, I would get it again. So let's agree on this that your lesson does not count as a day of practice and if you're going to skip a day it's the day after your lesson, but practice the day of your lesson while all of that stuff is still like percolating in your mind. I can't tell you how many times I, as a student, well-intentioned, by the way, I would, I would open up the book and it was like written in Urdu. What 
what did we talk about? What? I don't know what any of this means anymore, but if I'd done it right after my lesson, it doesn't have to be even like a full practice, 20 minutes to go up over everything once. That is, uh, I think a habit of a, of a successful, especially an adult, just like getting that in your mind. Cause our, the adult brain is so busy. You, you genuinely have a lot of things to think about. Even if you're retired, you have a life, right? So like just getting that in there, that extra repetition gets that from what we think about as working memory into your short-term and long-term memory that that one repetition does it. I completely agree. I completely agree in that. Yeah. So I I just think like how you, is music a part of your life Mm. or is it just something you do sometimes? Yeah. It can't be in isolation. Absolutely. I think listen, listening. um, Actually, there's a student right now at Tamarack Arts and she does not listen to music at all. And when she listens, she doesn't choose. So she's like, Oh, whatever is on the radio. And I'm just like, really, I'm going to see if I can work up like a playlist for her and mm-hmm. see, cause she also said she doesn't feel music very much. And so we're hitting her with Barbara Adagio. We're going full throated. Let's do it. Elgar concerto. Elgar, <laughs> right. Let's really hurt her feelings with music. A little, a little- <laughs> A little Vaughn Williams. Exactly. Yeah. Let's just, let's just really <laughs> reduce her to absolute rubble on the first experience. <laughs> it is funny though. Like our, our instrument does lend itself to like, okay, guys, you want to cry? Let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so actually we're just going to close it out with just like a little bit of like fun chit chat um, just for, for randomness. Um, my favorite ensemble to play in after all these years is a string quartet. Like I love the, the communication and it's like individual and as a group, it's like, and the, just like the timbre of the instruments is so great. So if, if you could only play in like one kind of ensemble, what would it be? Let's just say it's not like your job, but like all the gigs that you have for the foreseeable future are this, what would you play? Um, it would be any, any chamber music, to be honest, like mm. whether it's a duo with a cellist, like cello duo, or I also have a, a colleague who plays clarinet that we play duos together, mm-hmm. um, or string quartets or string trios or anything with woodwinds or anything with piano. Um, I'm really just string. If I could play chamber music for a living and that's all I did, I, w- I would die really, really, really happy. Yeah, and I think more and more people who were like soloists actually find that it's not, that's not what they're seeking. It's so funny. I feel like Martha Argerich has like devoted like the second half of her life to like always playing chamber music, even though she was like the finest pianist of her generation. Um, okay. Uh, do you have like a couple pieces that are your personal sweethearts, things that you've been playing or that you just pieces that you just absolutely love. So like I learned the Prokofiev Sonata last year and I cannot believe I hadn't learned it before then. Like it made a dent in my life. It's so good. Well, I think it goes back to my very first um, cassette tape with Yo-Yo Ma and Emmanuel Axe. It was the Brahms Sonatas. I knew knew that's what it was. I had that one too with Emmanuel Axe with this giant hair is like the best. I had that tape. And yeah, so the E minor sonata is always a favorite. And I actually didn't ever play it until I was an adult. I never played it in school. I never studied it. So one of the first recitals I gave outside of school, I put the Brahms sonata on it. Um, I feel like the E minor, by the way, better than the F major. Yeah, I think so too. I love it so much. Yeah, it's so good. It's so moody. I call it the Batman sonata. Yeah. (laughs) I also really love the Rachmaninoff sonata. 
Mm, I'm teaching that to a student right now. And it's like, I really look forward to those lessons a lot because it's so beautiful. Yeah. So I wish, I wish that my student could get a pianist, like even an amateur to just come to their lessons and hash through it with him. But it's so hard to find anyone who can actually play that piece. No, it's really hard. Same thing. um, I'm working on the Chopin Sonata with a student and like that, the pianist is sweating the whole time. Actually, the cellist is sweating too, though. It's, you can tell it's written by somebody who, um, isn't who a plays, cellist who plays piano yeah I'm yeah like, yeah yeah congratulations we know black <laughs> keys are easy for you fabulous um okay how about a piece maybe it's an unpopular opinion piece that you would be super cool never hearing again um you can you can try to guess what mine is i'll give you a hint you mentioned it in this podcast already the elgar picture? oh no oh god oh. no elgar is tattooed on my soul what twinkle the baccarini oh the baccarini i think it's fun i never learned it and then i kind of went through now granted we know that, like the Greutzmacher edition is like a real yeah it's not it's, real it's yeah. a hash and whatever yeah but um i'm just like i watched yo-yo ma play it in london and i was like ah, it's okay okay well I mean, it was I'll- yo-yo but so yeah. so it was of course it was good but like <laughs> okay so what's yours Okay, so mine is not really a cello piece, but we do play it sometimes. Meditation from Thais. <gasps> mm, just <Painful>. cringe. <laughs> I hate that piece. I hate it so much that I did not list it in the repertoire on my string quartet wedding website. It is not, I took it, it's in all of our books and stuff. It's in our gig books, but I took it right off the list. So people are less likely if they're using that list as a guide for what to pick, they don't even see it. When I was playing weddings in LA, I, um, I actually charged 125 extra for Paco Bell. I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> and, and it's mostly though, because I'm like, it's not even because I hate it. Cause I don't mind. I, it's actually, there's, there's some beauty there actually it's fine but i'm like everybody's wedding sounds like this and i think maybe you could have a more a better relationship with with like a new piece that really sounds like yours so um yeah so okay so that that's good and then <laughs> so so you would say that's the piece you'd be like let's let's never do that again so yeah. um is there anything else you'd like to share with our with our listeners. I think I might have bamboozled her, ladies and gentlemen, into teaching for Tamarack Arts. So we're going to like keep an eye on the, on the enrollment page and we'll see like where she slots in. Um, I'm super excited to have her on board, but um, anything else you'd like to share? Yes. (gasps) Scary. No, we, we (laughs) talked about um, last time we talked, we talked about podcasts. Yes. And if we have any favorites, well, I definitely have one I want to share. Yes. It's the Cello Sherpa podcast. Um, It's really fabulous. It's done by Joel Dallow, who is a cellist in the Atlanta Symphony. And Cello Sherpa, you know, like a Sherpa helps you go up a mountain. S-H-E-R-P-A. Yeah. So it's your guide to cello playing. And the very first episode is with Stephen Isserlis. It's an interview. (laughs) And then after that, sometimes it's about going to college. So maybe you have some students who are thinking about taking college auditions or there's a very interesting um, interview about orchestral auditions. And is the system in America the best way? And 
why do orchestras have auditions and then hire no one like a hundred cellists show up and they hire no one i have um, been in one of those auditions <laughs> yeah me too um or you know you come in runner up and they don't even give you a trial you know like they should be given a trial to the first three players you know yeah just see who fits the orchestra best because what can you really tell from five minutes of playing you know um and he also had a really interesting interview with the principal flutist from the atlanta symphony who got her job when she was 20 years old oh that's so young good and, on her yeah and it was a really amazing interview and i just think it's um it's really captivating and he talks with some of the you know the principal cellists of houston and all these really famous cellists are on there and famous teachers and yeah it's just a really great podcast i totally recommend it well that's fantastic so basically all of the resources that we've talked about throughout this episode are going to be in the show notes and so there's going to be a link to cello sherpa as well as a whole bunch of other things maybe for the outro we'll do the uh, meditation from thais joking joking only we are not going to do that or the baccarini <laughs> we're probably just going to use my dinky little jingle that i wrote <laughs> anyway it's been such a pleasure to have you on and um, I look forward to working with you in the future. Me too. I'm super looking forward to Tamarack. Have a really great day, Emily. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Got a little punchy on the uh, stop record there. <laughs> so sorry I cut you off, Sandra. Uh, here is Benjamin Whitcomb playing some absolutely gorgeous Britain for you guys. <laughs> Mm-hmm.